Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. I want to start this morning with a reflective question for us. Have you ever been desperate? Desperation is a state of hopelessness. It's uh, when you've tried all that seems possible for you and your power to fix a bad or horrendous situation or something that's approaching and, and hopeless in seeing any way to bring about a positive end on your own. You're on the verge possibly of experiencing tremendous loss and you are hopeless to stop it or fix it. That's what desperation is. I, uh, I remember, I, I'm sure I've told you this story before, but I remember when Ethan, my Ethan was just a toddler, or not even a toddler, just a baby, and I'm changing his diaper, and he didn't want his diaper changed, and for the life of me, I can't figure out why children don't want their diapers changed, but, uh, but it happens a lot, and he got so upset, I'm changing him right there in the living room of our old parsonage over here, and he starts holding his breath, and then he stops screaming, and then he starts turning blue, and his lips start turning blue, and there in my arms are on the floor in front of me, I believe my son is dying, and, and in desperation just overtook me in less than a minute, and I cried out to Ann, called 911, Ethan is dying, and then he died. At least I thought he did, but he passed out is what he did, and then he started breathing again. I'll never forget I'll never forget that feeling of desperation. This past Wednesday, um, Ozzy, my grandson, Ethan's son, woke up and, and he wasn't holding his breath. He just was having such a hard time breathing. And, uh, and I appreciate all your prayers. He had croup and bronchitis, breathing treatments, steroids, etc. But I remember all day just kind of feeling little pangs of desperation, right? Because, you know, it wasn't quite like total desperation because I knew that they could help him. But, uh, but I could feel those pangs of desperation. Desperation has led many a man or woman to do terrible things. And it's also helped them at times accomplish many more things. Veronica Ross says desperation can make a person do surprising things. William Burroughs said desperation is the raw material of drastic change. I think both of those observations are true in the lives of desperate people. So I want to ask you again this morning is, as we begin, you know, are you, have you ever been desperate? Or maybe, just maybe, you're feeling desperate even today, even right in this moment. So as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark, we've come to a place where we're going to find two desperate people. And these two desperate people, their lives are going to intersect in this one singular person at this one, if you would, singular place. And uh, so I'd like us to look at their lives, and what I want to do is I want to draw some observations from their story about desperation. And I'm hoping that what I share with you will, will be encouraging, challenging. Some of it you may feel kind of blah when I'm finished, but I'm, I'm going to just make some observations, and I'm, I'm hoping they'll be helpful to us. So Mark chapter 5, verse 21 when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. And one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he begged him earnestly, My daughter, my little daughter, is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. 
So Jesus went with him and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. And having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. And instantly her flow of blood ceased. And she, see, she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. If you remember last week, Jesus was on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. There he healed a man. He released a man who was possessed by a legion, by many, many demons. And now he's returned back to the Jewish side. And as soon as he gets out of the boat, people recognize him. And a crowd begins to gather. His fame is large by this time. In the crowd is a synagogue leader by the name of Jairus. He might be comparable to my position as a a lead pastor in a a Christian congregation. And uh, he seeks Jesus out. He would have been a man of influence. He would have been a man of power in that community. Um, He was most likely a wealthy man uh, with that position. His daughter was ill, seriously ill. And he fell at the feet of Jesus and he begins to beg Jesus to come and lay his hands on his daughter and make her well. I'm speculating here, but I imagine that he may have seen Jesus lay his hands on somebody. You know, he, maybe he had watched Jesus in the past lay his hands on someone. And if he hadn't seen it personally, obviously someone's told him. And, and he believes. And Jairus is desperate. Jesus starts going with him, but the crowd is large and the crowd is pressing against him. And in that crowd is a woman on mission. And her mission is to touch Jesus because she believes if she just touches his clothes, she'll be made well too. Medical folks today think that she had, I might not pronounce this right, menorrhagia. Menorrhagia Menorrhagia is a disorder related to menstruation where you keep bleeding in between your cycles. And so this woman was constantly bleeding. But what was worse for her, maybe than the, and I can't be saying worse, because when we're sick, you know, she would have been anemic because of that. Uh, she would have been weak, you know, all of those things that go along with just losing blood all the time. But, but from a Jewish perspective, also, she was ceremonially unclean. She could never go worship because she was always bleeding. And there was never, there was never a period where she would have this time of not bleeding so she could be declared clean. She'd been enduring this for 12 years, and she'd spent all of her money, and uh, doctors hadn't been able to to heal her. I I think I just read it that they made it worse. I don't know if that's true. But she is desperate. She's desperate, too. She's heard the stories about Jesus, and she has believed, and she thought, man, if I just touch his clothes. So here's my first observation. Desperation is not a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter who you are. You could be Jairus, a man. You could be Jairus, a ruler. You could be Jairus, a very religious man. And desperation can come to you. Or you can be this woman, this woman who is just probably a common woman. And and not just a common woman, maybe a woman who's actually looked down on by society because she has this bleeding disorder, right? She's not viewed as somebody who's holy because she's always bleeding. must be a curse from God. And yet both of these people become desperate. So again, here's my observation. It doesn't matter who you are. Desperation can come to you. Desperation can be your lot. 
We, uh, we tend to think sometimes, I believe anyway, that because we're Christians, we get a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? Because we love Jesus and we follow Jesus, that none of these things that would bring about desperation in our life uh, are going to come to us. And, and I'm telling you, that's simply not the case. None of us is immune from this. So the Apostle Paul writes his protege, Timothy, in his second letter to him, and he says, Uh, He's about to be beheaded by Nero. And evidently Paul knows this. And this is what he says to him. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure, the time of my death has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul, there's no hint of desperation in Paul's Words. He says, I'm about to die. He said, but you know what? On the day of Jesus appearing, everyone who's loved that day, everybody who's looking for that day, hey, they're going to receive this, this crown of righteousness on, on that day. Difficult, painful, hurtful, deadly things happen to believers and to unbelievers. And none of us is immune. Happens to men, to women, to rich, to poor. Your ethnicity doesn't immune you. Your nationality doesn't exempt you. That's my first observation. Here's my second observation. Hopefully this one's an an encouragement, a challenge to us. Bring your desperation to Jesus. Bring your desperation to the one who can help you. Everything they had tried up until this point had fallen short. And when that didn't work, only Jesus was left. So they came to Jesus. And our story doesn't tell us that Jairus has, you know, um, exhausted all of his possible helps, right? But he, it is clear he has. He's wealthy. He's rich. He probably would have brought in all kinds of doctors. He's done everything he knows to do. But Jesus, he's heard about Jesus. Jesus could heal my daughter And so in his desperation, he turns to Jesus. The woman's the same thing. We know she's exhausted. All all avenues open to her. She's been doing this for 12 years, trying to find help, and she hasn't been able to find help. And in her desperation, she comes to Jesus. So my encouragement to us today is that if you find yourself desperate, if there is a situation that's brought desperation to your heart, things are out of control, you can't control them, and they look like they're heading off the cliff, Come to Jesus. And I say come to Jesus because of this, because all things are possible for Jesus. There's nothing beyond the scope of his abilities. I, you know, Jack and I didn't coordinate, but I loved his Jesus phone call, right? Call on me. That, that's, that's what I'm trying to say to us this morning. My observation is that when you're desperate and nothing else, there's nothing else, come to Jesus. Come call on him. Now, unfortunately, uh, Jesus isn't with us these days to go and find him and touch his clothes when he's not looking, right? And neither is he around where you can go and fall down and, and talk to him audibly and see him and him talk to you. You can't do that anymore, right? But Jesus left us a helper. Jesus left us his spirit. Jesus left us the Holy Spirit, the counselor of God. And though we cannot go to Jesus personally, we can go to his spirit and we can cry out to him and we can touch his spirit with our cries and we can beg the spirit just as Jairus was begging Jesus on that day. 
In fact, I'm going to suggest to you, and I'm going to get to this a little bit later on in this talk, but I'm going to suggest to you that before your desperation even sets in, turn to Jesus, right? So we'll come to that in just a few moments. Here's my third observation. In your desperation, don't forget that there are many others who are desperate too. Now, Jairus uh, was oblivious to the woman with the, with the bleeding disorder, right? And I want to suggest to you that the woman with the bleeding disorder, maybe in the moment she knew about Jairus, but she'd been oblivious to Jairus in his desperation. I want to encourage all of us, and especially those that maybe you're in desperation today, or you'll find yourself in desperation tomorrow. Never forget that others are desperate too. And you might be asking yourself, how does that help? How does it help to know that somebody else is desperate like me? Why don't I give you two, two thoughts that I had. First, when you remember that others are facing situations that they can't control and they're desperate like you, it reminds us that suffering is part of this world that we live in. And it's not that God is singling you out to simply make you desperate. Okay, we live in a fallen, broken world. And when you recognize that there's others around you that are desperate, when you kind of get your eyes off your own desperation and you look around you and you see others that are desperate as well, it kind of reminds you that this is just part of living in this world that we live in. But the second reason, maybe both of these, maybe both of these thoughts are anecdotal. Maybe they're just things that I observe and maybe they're not really true or right. But anecdotally, I would say to you, getting your eyes off of your desperation and seeing the desperation of others, it strengthens you because you seek to strengthen others. Let me see if I can't say that in some other words. When, when, when you are not so self-absorbed in your own desperation and you look out and you see the desperation of others, there's just something about having an other's focus that strengthens you to strengthen them, and in and of itself, it strengthens you too. When Shep died, I discovered how many moms and dads have lost a daughter or a son, and many suffered, you know, like me and, and like Anne. I'm just going to talk about it from my vantage point. As I've shared my experience about losing Shep, man, I have found that it has strengthened me to try to help other people walk through their loss. So when you remember that you're not alone in your desperation, and you and I know my situation with Shep's not desperation necessarily, it's grief, but but you know, it could have been desperation. When you are when you are desperate and you're remembering that you're not alone, that God isn't singling you out somehow, I have found anecdotally that it strengthens you to strengthen them. And that's what happens when you get your eyes just off your desperation. And I know this is really hard to do, all right? Um, But when you get your eyes off your desperation and and maybe see that others are in a similar situation to yours. Let's go back to the story, verse 30. Immediately, Jesus realized that the power had gone out of him, out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you and yet you say, who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. 
As soon as she touched Jesus, Jesus felt power go out from out from him. Didn't know where, didn't know why, didn't know who, but he felt power go through him. People are pressing him on all sides. He said, who touched me? And his disciples think it's a ludicrous question. What do you mean? Everybody's touching you. But Jesus, you know, it's funny. He ignores them. Do you notice that? Kind of ignores them. Um, And the woman, of course, she recognizes that he's talking about me. And so she comes up and she's embarrassed. Remember, she wants to be incognito. She's got a female problem. She's bleeding. She's unclean. She doesn't want to be front and center in all of that. So she's trying to be incognito. But Jesus says, who touched me? And with fear and trembling, she comes forward and it says that she told him everything. So I tell you, folks, he, she didn't whisper in his ear. That means in front of all those people that were in, pro, in close proximity, they could all hear what she was saying. And um, so she, she, you know, whatever shame there was with all of that, it didn't matter now. She tells Jesus. And don't you love what Jesus says to her? He calls her daughter. Daughter. Here's a woman who's been ostracized. Here's a woman who has been looked on as unclean, as someone God's got something against. And Jesus refers to her as his daughter. And then he says to her, your faith has saved you. Your faith has healed you is what he means in that situation. Now, just to note, Jesus does not mean her faith is the cause or the, the active Thing that brought about her healing. He does not mean that. God healed this woman. Her faith didn't heal her. God healed her. Actually, I want to suggest that the power of the Holy Spirit passing through Jesus healed her. So I was, I was talking to somebody this week about this passage. I, I quoted it to them and they said, well, hey, this, you know, there's two thoughts about how Jesus heals. One of them is that he innately retains his omniscience, except for what he didn't know. And he retains his omnipotence. And, and of course, he can't be omnipresent. But all those other things he has. So Jesus is innately healing through his own power. I, I disagree. My thought is that Jesus does it. And I've told you all this many times. But my thought is that he does this. Everything he did power-wise, supernaturally, was through the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so I think this is the power of the Spirit of God passing through Jesus. He doesn't know when, where, how. He just feels that God has done something miraculous through him. And uh, he says, your faith has healed you. But, But he doesn't mean that the faith is the agent of healing. God is the agent of of healing. It's God's power that's in operation in this lady's life to heal her. Stay with me because this is really important. In the same way, our, in the same way, our faith never saves us. Our faith never saves us. It is the work of God that saves us. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that saves us. It is the application of that death to our lives by the Holy Spirit that saves us. So when we say we're saved by faith, we're not saying that our faith as as some kind of thing brought about our salvation. No, God saves us. If our faith could save us, then Jesus need not die. Follow me, follow me. This is really important, okay? Faith is our responsibility. 
God sits in his heaven and says, I will save everyone who by their own responsibility puts their faith in me. But when God saves, it's not faith that's saving, it's Jesus that is saving. So don't conflate God's responsibility to save us by his power and our responsibility to exercise faith. So when this woman, when this woman touches him and confesses, Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Her faith didn't heal her. God healed her. What Jesus is saying, your faith is the reason why God has exercised his power to save you. Verse 35, back to the story. While he was still speaking, people from the synagogue leader's house said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. Here's my fourth observation. God doesn't share our desperation. God is never desperate. Jairus is desperate, and his desperation increased when Jesus paused to deal with this woman. I guarantee you that it did, right? But when the announcement comes, Jesus isn't desperate. Jesus isn't afraid. It's not affecting Jesus. Jesus says to Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. Now believe what? What is Jesus asking Jairus to believe? Believe that she's not dead? Hey, only believe that she's not dead. Now I don't think that's what he's asking, or I don't think that's what he's saying. Is he saying, believe that I'm going to raise her from the dead? I don't think that's what he means either. Here's what I think he means. I think he was saying, you believed I could rescue her, and that's why you're here. Keep on believing that I can rescue her. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus knows the end from the beginning. He knows what lies ahead. And he is not desperate about any of it for us. As desperate as you might be, the truth is that God knows, God cares, God can change your situation, God can rescue you. There there is one who has the ability to stop your pain, to reverse the direction, to rescue you. Jesus is never desperate. Jesus is never anxious. Here's my point. If God loves you, and he does, and if God is with you, and he is, and if God knows you, and he does, then if God is not anxious about anything, you don't need to be anxious either. And I realize, I realize (laughs) that me saying that is so different than living it out, isn't it? So different. And yet, I'm, I'm trying to say to us, this is where we need to, this is where we need to be. This is where we need to go. We need to trust God so much, trust his love for us, trust his person, trust his promises that we're not anxious, even in what seems to be the most desperate situation for us. So now that brings me to my next observation. I think it's five. I don't know how I'm numbered, but here's my next observation. God doesn't always rescue you in your desperation. Sometimes you die. Jairus' desperation, his lack of hope, turned to hope when Jesus said he'd come. But then his daughter dies. Now what I'm about to say might seem like a contradiction. I, I, don't, I don't know how else to address it but straight on. So let me, let me do my best. In your desperation, turn to Jesus. Call on him. He can rescue you. He healed the woman with the blood issue when no one else could. Jesus can cure your cancer when doctors can't. Jesus can reverse your mental illness. Jesus can deliver you from your demon or demons or your addictions. He can deliver you. He can, 
But it's equally true that he doesn't always do that. And you die. And, and that which is causing you such despair becomes a reality. We trust his love for us, but in the end, what we dread comes to pass. Our great loss happens. And whenever you're talking about this, and, and if, especially if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time and you know your Bibles, you've come to, you've come to hear about uh, Mishael, Hananiah, and Hazariah. These were three young Jewish boys who were taken into exile in Babylon. And they were told to worship Nebu- an image of Nebuchadnezzar or they would be burned alive. And uh, so when they don't, they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar says, bow or burn. And I love their answer. This is what they say. And this is what I'm trying to communicate to you. Our God is able to deliver us, they said. But if he chooses not to let it be known to you that we will not bow down to your gods. They knew and they trusted. And in their case, God delivered them. But I don't know the Hamilton family personally. But I feel like I've come to know them through Anna. Some of you actually know the father personally. And some of you know the kids uh, through Anna and Joe. I feel like I've come to know the Hamilton family a little bit. And, and, and I feel like they're trusting Jesus. They love Jesus. And they cried out to Jesus for Tori. And yet a couple of weeks ago, Tori died. They are not alone. And that the thing that they feared in their desperation came to pass, even though they were looking to Jesus. So here's the observation, right, that I'm making, that sometimes even when in our desperation we look to Jesus and we come to Jesus, sometimes the thing that we fear, the thing that makes us desperate, it still happens. Why doesn't God always rescue us? If God is all good and all powerful, why doesn't God, and he loves us, why doesn't he always rescue us? Some people say, and and forgive me if I've talked about some of this recently, but some people say it's our fault. God always wants to rescue you. And if you don't get rescued, it's because you couldn't muster enough faith. And if you just mustered enough faith, God would have rescued you. Johnny Johnny Erickson Tata, you know, the young lady that was uh, broke her neck in a swimming accident here in the Chesapeake Bay. She's probably as old as I am or older now. But anyway, you know, Joni's been in a, in a wheelchair her entire life, and she's become a great Christian spokesperson for our, our day and age. And Joni talks about how many times people have come up to her after a gathering in her wheelchair, and they've said to her, you know, Joni, if you just had enough faith, you could get out of that wheelchair. So some people think it's our fault. that if God always wants to rescue you, but if you don't, it's your, if he doesn't, it's your fault. Others suggest that God always wants to rescue you, but if he doesn't, it's because he has a specific plan or a specific reason, some reason why he didn't rescue. He always wants to, but there's a specific purpose or plan why he didn't. Maybe he wants to use your situation for his glory. John chapter 9. Why was this person born blind, they asked Jesus. You remember what Jesus said? They said, is it it dad's fault or was it his fault? And and Jesus says, neither one. So the glory of God might be revealed in him. Seems to indicate that there was a a reason why this guy was was born blind. I don't think it has to be that, but 
could be. Or maybe God wants to teach you something through the suffering. People say, well, God, God is permitting, God is not rescuing you because there's something he wants to teach you. And I want you to hear me clearly. I, I absolutely agree that there are times when God does that. There are times when God may not deliver you because it's part of his plan he has a reason that we can't see. I absolutely believe that. Paul, in fact, David, this morning in Sunday school, David, I mean, Paul's thorn in the flesh, right? He cries out to the Spirit three times, Lord, heal me, heal me, heal me. And every time God says, no, 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 because my grace is sufficient for you, right? So there's, there's a reason why God is saying no that God has given to Paul. Now, I know in this last thing, not all of you will agree with me. Maybe none of you agree with me, and it's quite all right. But it's because I believe that God doesn't rescue us all the time because I believe God has established a world that works on principle and order. And and so bad things happen to us because we live in this broken world. Now you might say, well, why doesn't God still, why doesn't still God, I don't know. But, But I think by and large, God allows the world to operate as he set it up and our choices result in, our choices result in consequences. And there are consequences that happen because we live in a, in a broken world. And, and so instead of, of reaching down and supernaturally changing all of our desperate situations, God instead says, I will be with you to walk with you in every desperate situation you're, you're in. Now, please don't misunderstand. Um, am I saying God never intervenes? Absolutely not. We know that God intervenes because there are things he wants to accomplish. You know, there are plans that he has. He sits in his heaven and does whatever he wants. So there are things that God wants to accomplish. And God at times intervenes in our desperation, like in the stories that we read today. In both cases, he intervened in their desperation, right? So he does that. He also intervenes in our desperation because of our prayers. But there are many times when he does not. And our desperation leads to the thing that, that we're despairing over. It actually comes to pass. You say, well, Jimmy, why does he answer Johnny's prayers and not Susie's? Why does he answer Tommy's prayers and not Billy's? Or, Man, I don't have any idea. We can ask him one day. On the other side, maybe on the other side of the resurrection, we'll be able to understand all these things. But not right now. Let's go back to the story, verse 37. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James' brother. They came to the leader's house, that it would be Jairus' house, and he saw a commotion, people weeping, wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, why are you taking, making a commotion, weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. They laughed at Jesus. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him. That would be Peter, James, and John. He entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and he said, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they they were utterly astounded. And then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. He separates himself from the crowd at this point. Why? Maybe it's because, I I think it's because of what happens at the very end where he says, don't tell anybody. He knows what he's about to do. 
And he doesn't, he's trying to, remember he's the, the messianic secret. He's trying to not just get people all worked up by the supernatural. And so he dismisses the crowd. He only takes three of his disciples with him. Maybe it's respect for the family, but I think it's probably that first thing. Can you imagine Jairus's emotions, man? Her daughter is dead and Jesus raises her from the dead. He doesn't heal her. She dies. But then he raises her from the dead. And this brings me to my last observation. And this is meant to be an encouragement. God will resurrect the dead. God will resurrect us from the dead. God may not rescue you in the moment of your desperation, even from death. But God will resurrect you back to life. He will raise you back to life. Do not despair. Have you ever noticed that Mark, have you noticed this or have I pointed it out? If we go back chapters four and five, Mark is pointing out first Jesus' power over nature, the storm. Then his power over demons, the supernatural or the spiritual. Then his power over sickness, the woman. Now it's power over death. Jesus would raise four people during his ministry, four that we know of at least. He would raise this girl. He would raise the son of the woman of Nain. He would raise Lazarus and he would raise more strategically, maybe and impressively, he would raise himself. The first three, let me talk about he raised himself. You know, the Bible says God, the father raised Jesus, God, the spirit raised Jesus and Jesus raised Jesus. It says all three. Why does it say all three? Because God raised Jesus. And God is one being three persons. And and God raises Jesus from the dead. The first three die again. The last one, Jesus, never dies again. He conquered death once and for all. God may not rescue you now, but he will rescue you. He will rescue you. Though you die, yet shall you live. So here's my two applications for us in these intertwined stories of desperation. And uh, I mean, I, I hope this helps. I, I, I First application, if you are facing a despairing situation, and I happen to know some of you are, maybe even being handed a terminal sentence, here's, here's don't despair. Don't allow desperation to take over you. Jesus is Lord of all. He has the power to heal you and restore you, even raise folks from the dead right now to die again at some point. He has that power. He is Lord over life and death. What that means is doctors are not God. And whatever they tell you is not the, it's not the, what does Dick always say, Catherine? It's not the end of the story. That's what Dick says to me a lot. It's not the end of the story. And, and this is, this is, it's not the end of the story. If you have a terminal disease, God can make it unterminal. God can change that. All things are possible for him. Furthermore, I want to make it clear that it's okay for you to want to live. And it's okay for you to want to be healed if you're suffering. God made us to want to live and he made us to want to live not in suffering. So it's okay to desire those things and to cry out to God for those things. I haven't seen this commercial in a long time, but the Cancer Institute of America, I think it was out in Phoenix, had this commercial. They used to say, you know, the commercial went like this. This woman gets a death sentence from her doctor. You only got months to live. So she goes out to the Cancer Institute uh, of America. And so she asked the doctor there, how long do I have to live? 
And this is what he says in the commercial. I've examined you all over and I didn't find a single spot where God has written an expiration date on you. I mean, I get that. that that's good, right? That's good because, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say that doctors can't have those good guesses if, if, if God doesn't intervene, but God can intervene. Our God is the God of life. He created life. He gives life. Death cannot touch you if God wills it otherwise. Now, death can touch you, and it will touch you, but it cannot touch you if God wills it otherwise. He has the power to reverse any death sentence. So, so back to my application. If you're facing a despairing situation, come to Jesus and let him, let him help you with your despair. Let him take your despair so you are not despairing anymore. Now, having said all of that, the curse of sin is death. We're all under the sentence of death. All of us will die. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter back to life, but she died again. She's dead. So did Lazarus, but he died again. He is dead. The only one who is still alive is Jesus. So here's my second application. Don't, de- don't be desperate when your time to die comes. We don't have to be despairing because the power of God has overcome death. Death is not the end of us. Though we will, every one of us, succumb to death, every one of you, at some point you will succumb to death, but it will not be the end of you as you are even now, for you will rise embodied one day to live on this world with our king you will rise again, and you'll, and, but without the flaws and without the corruption and without the curse of sin on our lives now, well, that will be removed, but you will rise to embodied life again. So when your time to die in this world comes, don't be despairing. Jesus is risen, and one day you're going to rise with him. When your death comes and its grip on you is certain and very soon, Unless God chooses otherwise, right? Trust the power of Jesus to overcome. Trust that he's with you. Trust that he conquered, that he's come back, and that you're going to get to come back too. You you will come back and live again with him. Some of you have suggested to me that I might be out of balance. You know, that I point too often to the return of Jesus and our resurrection from the dead. And I need to focus on the abundant life that God wants to give us now. And I confess, I may be out of balance. I I confess that. I want to fly with two wings of truth. I do. But I just cannot seem to get away from, and maybe Shep's death has something to do with it, but I cannot get away from what I perceive constantly in the Bible as I open it up, that the resurrection is everything. Seriously, God has given us abundant life now through the Lord Jesus, but the resurrection is everything that the Bible points to. It's pointing to the day when we shall live again with Jesus as our King. Revelation 1.17, John writes, When I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one, and I was Dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades, or death and Sheol. 
The language of verse 17 is really graphic. Here's what it says. Stop being afraid. I became dead. Stop being afraid. I became dead. Jesus is telling us he's already experienced death for us. So we don't have to be afraid of death. Death for the believer is temporary. It's not eternal. Eternal life is ours. Many things frighten us. The things that we don't know frighten us. What's around the corner may frighten us. What's over the hill may frighten us. I think what Jesus is trying to say is, I've been around the corner. I've been over the hill and I've got good news. I overcame death and so will you. You know, here's something I've noticed. I've noticed that when you're old, you seem to not be afraid of death as much anymore. Your, bi- your body's wearing down. You're tired. You actually look at death maybe as a time of, maybe it's relief because the, your body, the deterioration of your body has become so painful that life is just constant pain, right? But what about when you're young? What about when you're Tory's age and you get a breast cancer and treatments don't work? And, and, and it's just leading to this place where you're going to die at such a young age. I think Jesus is speaking to all of us, but to some of you young people. If, if this becomes something in the future for you or parents, for your children. Here, here's what I, stop being afraid of death. Jesus said, I, I know, I know. This is so easy for me to say and so hard for us to do. Stop being afraid. I've been there. I've done this for you. You, death is just a temporary thing. You have eternal life with me. I've told you this story lots of times, but forgive me. Some of you are new. You haven't heard it. I used to scuba dive and I hadn't, I I scuba dived. I got certified. I did a little bit of it. And then I, I got back into it. And my dive buddy and I went out to Chesapeake to the tower out of Chesapeake. And I hadn't dove in a long time. And I was, I'll be honest with you, I was scared. And we started going down the anchor rope. And, you know, there's that big tower. We're just, we're just uh, anchored just off the tower. And you can't see very, you can't see much in front of you at all. It's murky. It's bright and it's green, but it's murky. And I can barely see this far in front of me. And my dive buddy's down below me, but he comes back up the rope and he goes like this. I think he was asking me, are you Okay. But he could have been saying, it's okay, right? But either way, I was, that helped. We went on down the rope. And about 15 feet down, the Chesapeake Bay opened up to be like the clearest swimming pool you'd ever swum in. I think it's swam in. Forgive my English. Um, swim or swim, I'm not sure which it is. But it was the clearest, it was so clear. 40, 50 yards away, I could see the massive legs of that tower going down to, to the bottom. And, and I... And I wasn't afraid anymore. I think we're afraid of the unknown in death. Jesus said, I've gone before you. And it's okay. It's going to be okay. Don't be desperate. Don't be desperate. Jesus tells us, I am the living one. I became dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus says, I'm, I'm alive forevermore. I'll never die again. I conquered death. Death is no more for us. We, we can conquer death because of him. So we trust in Jesus, death won't hurt us again, and we won't hurt us, and we will live again when your time comes. The scripture then, so the scripture will come to pass, the one from 1 Corinthians 15, 
that ends like this. Death has lost the battle. Where is its victory? Where is its sting? Sin is what gives death its sting. The law is the power behind sin. But thank God for letting our Lord Jesus give us the victory. My dear friends, stand firm. Don't be shaken. Always keep busy working for the Lord. You know that everything you do for him is worthwhile. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.